The title of my message today is The Church After the Midnight Cry. Now, we've taken several months uh, dealing with this theme. And what we've seen is that the parable of the virgins is as much about the awakening of the church as it is the second coming itself. Uh, and if I've got it right in what I've been preaching, if I have got it right, this means that the next thing to happen on God's calendar is not the second coming, but rather the cry that awakens the church before the second coming. And this is the thing that I've been emphasizing for the last several weeks. Now, for those of you who may not have heard what I've had to say up to now, when Jesus talks about the ten virgins and who go out to meet the bridegroom, his hearers would have known better than we what he meant because he refers to the ancient Middle Eastern wedding. Their weddings are not like ours. Uh, their weddings didn't take place in a synagogue or registry office or a cathedral. Uh, the wedding took place in the bride's Bride, bridegroom's home. And the pattern was this, that it could be a, uh, a thing that could last over several days. The bridegroom would come to get his bride and take her back to his home. The thing is, she would never know exactly when he's going to show up since it's going on for several days. She would have uh, female attendants uh, virgins, young ladies, who would uh, be careful to have lamps because sometimes the bridegroom would come for her at night. And strange as it may seem to us, he would sometimes come in the middle of the night. Therefore, they had to have oil for their lamps. But Jesus said that in the last generation, when he uses the words, at that time, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who, look, who took their lamps and went out to the, meet the bridegroom. He is giving us a prophetic parable that the church will be asleep at the time of this great awakening to precede the second coming. Now, what Jesus is saying is that the cry will be so amazing that it will awaken the entire church. Now, he's using a metaphor that the church would be asleep uh, in the same way that imagine how you are at 2 o'clock in the morning. You're in a deep sleep, not expecting anything to happen, so that metaphorically speaking, at the time of this great awakening, the church would be in a deep sleep. I think that is one of the best descriptions of the church at the present time. The church, speaking generally, is in a deep sleep, not expecting anything to happen. But according to this, the whole church would be awakened, uh, totally and consciously aware, not only that Jesus Christ is coming a second time, but, in fact, he's coming soon. And it would do away with the people who say, 
Where is the promise of His coming? I've heard it all my life. Why should I believe it now? They won't be saying that then. The wake-up call, so real, so powerful, that in a way that we cannot fathom at this moment how it's going to happen, it will. I would compare this great awakening to the first great awakening. When do you think the first great, great awakening took place? Well, I can tell you, it's in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. And you hear about it every Christmas. Because during the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Magi, traditionally the, the wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. They could, have no, could not have known, nor would anybody have imagined, that three magi, just by asking a question, could get everybody hysterical. We're told King Herod was disturbed. All Jerusalem was disturbed. All the chief priests, teachers of the law, they were shaken rigid only because the Magi asked the question, where is he? They assumed everybody would know. The fact is, nobody knew, and yet there was something authentic about it. They all believed it. I don't want to go into that in more detail except to say that the midnight cry and the Greek word, actually is two Greek words. It means middle of the night. It doesn't mean 12 o'clock midnight like we think of the clock. In the middle of the night, when we are in a deep sleep, and as you've heard me say, you don't know you were asleep until you wake up. And you do things in your dreams you wouldn't do if you were awake. And so the church at this moment, as I speak, Asleep, not aware that we're asleep, and I suspect indulge in things we would not do if we were awake. In any case, the first great awakening will now be matched by the great awakening before the end, and the reason for the great awakening is to put the finishing touches on what Jesus would do from the right hand of God. Now, Jesus spoke of going into the banquet. And he says that the, when the bridegroom arrived, the virgins went in with him to the wedding banquet. What is that? That is a description of the greatest move of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost. And it is described in Revelation chapter 19 when the bride has made herself ready. Now, it's the wise virgins, according to Jesus, who enjoy the banquet. They're the ones that pursued the Word and the Spirit. How do you get Word and Spirit out of the parable of the ten virgins? Well, the lamp symbolizes the Word. The psalmist said, your Word is a lamp. And the oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit. And so the Word and the Spirit, the wise, took oil. 
Or to put it another way, every Christian is called to enter into his or her inheritance. Some do, some don't. Those who do are those who will be right in the middle of the greatest work of the Spirit since Pentecost. How would you like to be right in the middle of this great work of the Spirit? You need to know it will be ordinary people who are involved in it. We won't have any superstars when this happens. Ordinary people, those who pursued the Word and the Spirit. And so, the foolish virgins, who are they? Well, a quick way to get you to understand it, I would describe the foolish virgins as nominal church members. We're not saying they were never converted, not going there. We're saying that they are those who simply don't take that seriously. Holy Scripture. And after a period of time, they take on board theological baggage that is not biblical. You would be amazed how many in the church today have accepted the theory of evolution. You'd be amazed at those who no longer believe in the infallibility of Scripture. But when this awakening comes, it will be like God giving you a report card on your spiritual state. And those who were wise and had oil are given a pass that you have pursued your inheritance. But those who are foolish will be found out and ashamed. And I can picture this. When this comes, there will be church members right, left, and center coming to those who did pursue their inheritance and say, please pray for me. Please pray for me. Help me. Help me. And the reply would be, well, I want to pray for you. I will do anything I can, but I just have enough for myself. Now, something else takes place at that particular time, and that is when God swears in His wrath that the foolish will never become wise. But the foolish at the same time will see atheists coming to Christ and be put to shame because they had, in the meantime, accepted things like evolution, denying the virgin birth of Jesus, denying the infallibility of Scripture. And so this banquet is a move of the Holy Spirit, the greatest since Pentecost, when the Word and the Spirit come together. The quickest way to find out what will the church be like after this awakening is simply to read the book of Acts. It will be all over again. And remember this, it is what is orchestrated by our Lord Jesus Christ while He's still in heaven at the right hand of God. Psalm 110, verse 1. The most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Sit at my right hand until I make my enemies my footstool. Some have thought that the only way these things can happen on earth is for Jesus to leave His throne and cause it to happen. Wrong. He will do it all, sitting at God's right hand, 
And the Holy Spirit will make the bride ready. As it is put in the Old Testament again and again, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so we read in Revelation chapter 9, Rejoice and be glad because the bride has made herself ready. And what precipitates this is the cry in the middle of the night when the Word and the Spirit come together. Now, when this happens, it will be as definite, recognizable as what happened a few years back, September 11th, 2001. We call it 9-11 in America. You've heard that expression too. So real, whether it would be something like the Magi coming into Jerusalem and the whole place being shaken, or one word given over an iPhone. You perhaps know. Did you know most young people under the age of 25 don't have a computer? Don't need one. Smartphones, iPhones, do everything. You get your weather report, news, headlines, communicate. How did they fill Tahir Square in Cairo a couple of years ago when one imam said one word and in one hour 100,000 people gathered. How did they know to do that? It's the way things are communicated today. I'm not saying that is the way it will happen. It wouldn't surprise me. The point is, it'll be something so definite that it will spread right around the world in a very short period of time. It could be set off by the greatest catastrophe ever. Uh, but mark it down, it will get everybody's attention. And that is the next thing that will happen, and it can happen at any moment. I woke up this morning, I promise you, I thought, could it be today? I told Colin three or four months ago, I'm hoping it will happen while I'm here. It is so real. This is what is happening. But here's the bad news. The foolish, they get their report card. And they have not oil in their vessels. Do not have the chance then to cross over and become wise. And so, the bride made up of the wise virgins will make the whole world wonder at the honor and glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul put it like this. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. And so what you have in the book of Acts describing the church is what you'll have here. Not everybody will be saved. This is the surprising thing. You would have thought with the kind of power that is going to be manifested that everybody would just say, oh, count me in. If that's true. I'll be, I want to be a Christian. It's never been like that. In the book of Acts, when there were signs and wonders, miracles, some were thrilled, but some were angry or 
Imagine this, being present to see Lazarus raised from the dead. You would have thought, well, common sense would cause everybody to want to follow Jesus. But immediately, the Pharisees said, oh, the whole world is going after him. We've got to stop it. So you have this in the book of Acts. The Sadducees, after the man 40 years old is healed in Acts chapter 3, you would have thought, everybody will now want to be a Christian. Some did. But at the same time, the religious people said, we've got to stop this. And they began to persecute. So remember, the world will respect the church and that will bring honor and glory to God. Doesn't mean everybody will be saved. So you can be sure there will be persecution of the church. Whereas it will be the church's finest hour. And I believe nearly all here will be alive to see it. I just trust that all of you are among the wise virgins pursuing your inheritance. Because here's what happens to those who are foolish. God will swear an oath. The moment the cry comes, it's too late. Take Numbers 13 and 14. The Lord said to Moses, Send twelve spies to Canaan, one from each tribe. And the twelve spies went into the land of Canaan to see what it was like. And they came back with an amazing report. They said, it is marvelous. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. And they brought back grapes of Eskel. And it is all true, but, but, we can't go in. Ten of them said, we can't go in. We're just grasshoppers. These are giants. Caleb spoke up and said, yes, we can. We will do it because God's with us. The power of God will enable us to do it. No, the rest outvoted 10 to 2. What they couldn't have known, that God was so grieved with that decision that he swore in his wrath that they would not enter. Well, the funny thing is, the next day, read it in Numbers 14, it says, we made a mistake. We, we, we can do it. We can, we can go in. Moses says, don't even think about it. It's too late. Oh, we can do it. And they were beaten. And the whole generation stayed in the wilderness for 40 years. When God swears an oath in His wrath, it is too late. You see, when the awakening comes, and if you find you among those who did not have oil, you were not pursuing your inheritance, it's too late to cross over, to be among the wise. What you can do is you hear this word, it's not too late now. And that's the reason for this message. You don't need to repeat the error of ancient Israel. Well now, what exactly will the church be like after the midnight cry? This era between this great awakening, which I'm calling midnight cry, and the second coming. What will the church be like? Now, there are two parts of my sermon today. The first part, what will characterize the church. The second part, the relationship between the church and the world. Well, the church. We characterize by four things. The first, there will be a fear of God in the land 
with regard to the church. Another thing will be the manifestation of signs and wonders as you have in the book of Acts. Third, the priority of teaching. And fourth, a, a restoration of gospel-centered preaching. And not only will it be gospel-centered preaching, but preaching with great power. I was asked by a publisher several days ago to write a book on the subject, Whatever Happened to the Gospel? It seems that in so many churches, and I don't mean to be unfair, and I don't mean to be critical, but the gospel seems to be the last thing people are interested in. They just take for granted, oh, we know about the gospel. And wherever I go in the world, and I go into uh, churches that are uh, evangelical, charismatic, I reach everybody I can, anybody that will have me, I go preach for them. Uh, I'd invite, if the Pope invited me, I'd preach for him. I might not invite him to come here and preach for me, but I might preach for him. But I would say the same thing wherever I go. And I ask the question, and I'm going to ask you, do you know for sure, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven, do you? And if you were to stand before God, and you will, and he were to ask you, he might, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? It's the most important question anybody can ever ask you. You're going to stand before God. And if he did ask you, why should I let you in? And right on the spot, you've got to give the right answer. And there's only one answer. Give the wrong answer. You have to go someplace else. You don't want to go there. What would you say? And I ask this question all over the world, and I've been astounded how many there are in the church that believe that if they get to heaven, it'll be because they're doing their very best and trying to do this and do that. And it doesn't cross their minds what gets us into heaven. And so that's what I mean by gospel-centered preaching. What would you say to God if He says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? And so gospel-centered preaching will be realizing all over again that Jesus, the God-man, died on a cross having fulfilled the law perfectly, and that when He died on a cross, the blood that He shed satisfied the justice of God once for all, and then Bodily, physically, he was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and will stay in heaven at God's right hand until what I'm talking about today is accomplished. And once the bride has made herself ready, then he will come. What entered your mind a moment ago? When I said to you, what would you say to God? If he were to say to you, why should I let you in? What comes to your mind right now? Be honest. It's for real. You have to say the right thing. What do you think you'd say to God? Do you know? And I have to say to you, if the thought 
that Jesus dying on the cross is the only way you get to heaven did not enter your mind. If it didn't enter your mind as I spoke, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if I were to say, well, you get to heaven for one reason because Jesus died for you, you might say, oh, yeah, 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 I believe that. Problem is, you didn't think of it on your own. And if it's presented to you, you say, yeah. But out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I want right now to get you to pray this prayer. By the way, sermon isn't over yet, but I want you to pray this prayer right now. If you gave the wrong answer in your heart, say it in your heart, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. You need to pray that prayer if you gave the wrong answer. And so, when this wake-up call comes, this is the kind of preaching that will be heralded from every pulpit. Gospel-centered preaching and with the same kind of power. Take the day of Pentecost. When the 120 came out and they were rejoicing and thrilled, manifesting the Holy Spirit in such a way that the Jews said, ah, oh, they're drunk. They got a hold of some new wine. And Peter spoke up and said, no, we're not drunk. Here's what happened. At the beginning of Peter's sermon, they were laughing him to scorn. At the end, they said, tell us what to do. Help me. Help me. Tell us what to do. This is what will happen. This message will be preached. And there will be those who haven't heard it and will say, tell us what to do. And I'm telling you what to do. You ask God to save you because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But there will be another thing. The, as the earliest church was characterized by the priority of teaching. Did you know that? As soon as Luke gives the account of 3,000 being converted on the day of Pentecost, the next thing he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see, teaching, they loved it. Question, do you like Bible teaching? You say, well, R.T., I just find it so boring. Well, let me tell you, when you're being led by the Spirit, you will want to learn all you can. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And if you don't have an appetite that you want to learn all you can, something is wrong. But in the earliest church, the priority of teaching emerged, and that will happen again. And there's more. Holiness. Acts 9.31, all the church walked in the fear of the Lord. 
This means you're walking in sexual purity. It means you're walking in total forgiveness. It means you're spending time with God and you want to know His Word. Question, how much do you read your Bible? How many of you don't even have a Bible reading plan? You're not spiritual enough just to say, well, I need to be, read my Bible today. Let's see. Oh, here we go. Song of Solomon, chapter 3. All night long on my bed, I'll look for the one my heart loves. Thank you, Lord. And say, that's your Bible reading. I'm so glad that many years ago, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones introduced me to a Bible reading plan. I can tell you now, I've read the Bible through 40 times. People say, R.T., I want your anointing. And I'll be glad to transfer it to you, but hopefully that all the times I've read the Bible would also flow into you. There's no shortcut. But you can start now saying, God, I haven't read your word. I'm ashamed. You can start now to spend time. How much do you pray? The average church leader in Britain spends four minutes a day in prayer. You wonder why the church is powerless. I was told reliably the other day, and I was so pleased to hear this, that the Archbishop of Canterbury, the present one, spends an hour a day in his quiet time. He, maybe I don't have the right to tell that, but he told a friend of mine who says, let me tell you about our Archbishop. It's good to know that. But most church leaders, they don't have time. And the average church member, I learned from my dad to spend time with God. He wasn't a clergyman. He worked for a railroad company in Ashland, Kentucky, but he prayed 30 minutes a day. You see, this is what I'm talking about, pursuing your inheritance. And so, this kind of Christian is what you had in the book of Acts. And I'll tell you one other thing. The Lord's Supper will have a fresh and sober meaning. We just took the Lord's Supper a few minutes ago here. But did you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when the Apostle Paul observed something that had been going on in Corinth that wasn't very happy, do you know what it was? Did you know that in the church of Corinth, they began to notice among those who were the Christians and professed faith in Christ that many were sick. Some were weak. They wondered, why are we so weak? Why are we sickly? And some had died. They were having premature deaths in Corinth. And Paul says, do you want to know why it is? He says, it's the way you observe the Lord's Supper. And so the way you've done it, he says, that's not the Lord's Supper you're taking at all. But you're calling it that. And he says, for this reason, some of you are weak and sickly. Some of you have fallen asleep. That's a word that means they died. I don't know that that happens today. We're not in a revival situation. And I think of people like Ananias and Sapphira that lied to the Holy Spirit. They were struck dead on the spot. People lie today. They're not. Why? We're not in a revival situation. That's my explanation. But when this cry goes forth, all that will change. And so the priority of teaching, gospel-centered preaching, signs and wonders, and reverence for the church, because listen to this, in Acts chapter 5, verse 13, and you might have thought that when you had something happen like people being struck dead in your church, 
that this would cause everybody to run every direction away from the church. I suppose if anything like that happened in Kensington Temple, people struck dead, you'd say, well, people don't want to go to that church anymore. But you know the effect it had after Ananias and Sapphira lied? It says, great fear came upon all the people. And Acts 5.13 says, no one else dared join them. That means the unbelievers, those that weren't saved, had such respect for the believers that when the believers came onto the temple, they just stood back and said, anywhere you want to go. This is what I mean by the bride making herself ready. Who do you know that is afraid of the church today? Do you know anybody that's afraid of the church today? Well, they thumb their noses at us. They laugh at us. It doesn't bother them. That will change. And there will be a respect and a fear of the church. In fact, did you ever notice this from the book of Esther? Chapter 9, verse 3, it says, And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai seized them. Mordecai, this Jew, who would not be ashamed to stand before what God had revealed to him, being the true God. They first laughed at Mordecai. And now the fear of Mordecai sees them. At the moment, they laugh at the church. But that's going to change. This is what the church will be like right after this wake-up call. But now let me move to the church and the world. Only to point out that ordinary people will be doing this. You'll be preaching the gospel. You don't need a seminary degree to do it. You'll be laying hands on people. You don't have to go to Oral Roberts University to learn how to do that. Billy Graham, move over. Ordinary people will be preaching this word. Imagine standing out by the tube station at Notting Hill Gate and talking about Jesus, but this time with power. And laying hands on sick people, power. And the world will stand in awe. That is coming down the road. It will result in unusual conversions. This is thrilling. Take the example of Acts chapter 8, when the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go to the desert. So he goes. He doesn't know why. He's in the middle of the desert. He's standing there. Why am I here? There comes a chariot. Hmm, who's that? Holy Spirit says, go up to the chariot. And from that point on, Philip witnesses to a man who had been reading from Isaiah chapter 53. He said God was preparing him. Whenever a person's converted, they're prepared at both ends. God was at work in the Ethiopian eunuch, and God led Philip to him. Or who was the most unlikely person to be converted? It was a man who had got permission from the authorities to arrest every Jew who professed the name of Jesus. And he was causing havoc in the church. Saul of Tarsus, everybody was scared of. When suddenly, Saul, on his way to kill Christians, struck down. And he begins crying out, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Sovereign conversions. 
what will happen after this midnight cry? People from the mafia saved. Major business people saved. Heads of corporations, political leaders, those who aren't even looking after God suddenly are seized. Political leaders, secular scientists, famous atheists, Jewish rabbis, Muslim religious leaders, including terrorists, suddenly saved. And it's no secret that Muslims by the tens of thousands all over Saudi Arabia, Palestine, Indonesia are having dreams about Jesus and they're recognizing that He died on the cross. He was the Son of God, but they're afraid to open their mouths. But they're all waiting for somebody to do it. One day, a prominent imam will say, I too had a dream. And it will encourage millions to come out of hiding. And so did we. And in a short period of time, Muslims by millions, all this Jesus orchestrating it from the right hand of God. And then last, but not least, because of a statement Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 13. Uh, this verse, by the way, was my impetus many years ago. Well, 12 years ago, not that many years ago, when I had opportunity to speak to some prominent Palestinians. In fact, I took Michael Yusuf to meet Yasser Arafat, and people said, why are you doing it? I said, because in Romans 11:13, Paul said, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may have such people aroused to envy and save some of them. In other words, it would make them jealous. And can you imagine the last people to get in on this while Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, and many people that never really heard the gospel in America and in Britain suddenly are being saved. It will shame the Jews. But in this time, the blindness upon them will be lifted. And this is the last thing to happen before the bride makes herself ready. You know, you've probably run into them. They're good people. They mean no harm, and I don't mean to be unfair. But they talk about the temple in Israel, and all this has got to happen. I'll tell you something I said to Yasser Arafat, first time I met him. Can't say he grasped it, but I can tell you what I said to him. I said, you know, the most important thing, Ra'is, is where will you be a hundred years from now? He says, it won't matter then whether you get Jerusalem or the Israelis get Jerusalem. What will matter is where are you a hundred years from now? And by the way, the time is coming when the blindness upon Israel will be lifted. Many of your own people will be saved. And the Jews will say to you, is it the temple mount you want? Take it. You can have it. 
Because the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. We know now why Jesus died on the cross. We don't need the temple. And then the end will come. Dear friends, it's a great time to be alive. I can't prove to you today that I will be alive to see it. I have thought that I would, and I wouldn't want to make too much over this, but I will tell you that one night, a Sunday night, 10 o'clock at night, driving back to Nashville, there's a vision. Revival going right around the world, and the whole world awakened, aware. Not only is Jesus coming back, but He's coming soon, and people were shaken rigid. And I've thought, because I had that, I, I could see myself in it, that I'll be alive. I might be wrong about whether I'm alive, but you can mark it down. This is coming. The question is, do you welcome it? How would you feel if you knew the cry would come today? Would you say, oh, good? Or how would you feel? First thing is to know that you're saved. Then as a Christian, whether you're like the wise virgin taking oil in your lamp.